All right, open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 49. If you don't have a Bible and, you, and you'd like to look along with us, we won't have it up on the screen. I love to have people um, have it in their lap so they can see that I'm not just making this stuff up, that you can see it for yourself. It's, it's right there in God's Word. So if you need a Bible, we have some over there, and I think some back there at the tables there. If you have one of those Bibles, it's on page 44, um, Genesis 49. Today we're going to look at uh, Jacob's blessings and his burial, okay? We're going we're gonna to hear his final words, and then we're going we're gonna to see his, his funeral uh, procession. And if you, if you look in your Bible, especially here in, in chapter 49, you might notice that, the, that the, the, the wording, all of it's indented, and it's framed up differently than what we've been seeing throughout a, a lot of Genesis, okay? Most of Genesis is narrative, it's story form, it's, it's history told in story. But right here we get to a, a different form, we get to poetry, okay? In Joseph's blessings to his sons, he's going he's gonna, to, now he didn't like write a poem for them, but it, it's expressed to us in God's word through poetic language because Jacob uses, uh, has a heavy use of imagery and a heavy use of wordplay here in the original Hebrew, and he's gonna, that's going to help us see then how Jacob's blessings for his sons ultimately lead to God's blessings for us. We're going to watch a father bless his sons here, and, and hopefully, Lord willing, by the end of it, we're not just going to be um, uh, uh, observants. Is that right? Is that a right word? Observers, thank you, of this, but participants in it, okay? So let's pray and uh, ask the Lord to help and then we'll dig in. Father, thank you that your word is faithful and true. We thank you that it is uh, just like Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We pray this morning that you would help us to see Jesus in the words of Jacob, and that you would uh, draw our hearts to deeper love and affection and obedience to him as our king because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've heard it said that um, last words are lasting words. Last words are lasting words. When a loved one passes away, whether unexpectedly or expectedly, we often think back to the last time that we spoke to that person, right? And sometimes we remember those last words with, with fondness because we were able to express our love for one another. One final time, we were able to resolve anything that was left unresolved. Uh, sometimes the Lord just gives us that gift of being able to to, to pick the last words, right? Sometimes, though, we remember those last words with regret because, because they, they left things unfinished. They left things unresolved, uh, tension or, or hurt or pain or, or unreconciled things between us. This morning, we're going to hear Jacob's last words to his 12 sons. And these are lasting words preserved in God's unchanging word forever. And while they're originally directed to Jacob. Uh, from Jacob to his sons, they were also words that would shape the future of the nation of Israel. And ultimately, words that we can look back on with lasting hope to our own future. So let's dig in. Genesis 49, verses 1 and 2. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather around, and I will tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Come together and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Now, if you were here last week, we went through chapter 48, and, and you remember that Jacob adopted Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons. After he did that, then he called the rest of his sons in. He told Jacob, or uh, Joseph last week, right? I'm about to die. 
So, so this is a continuation of that. He knows it's coming. And so he wanted to give them the blessings before he died. But Jacob wasn't just going to pronounce blessings on his sons here. He was going to tell them their future. They weren't just wishful words from a father. They were, they were prophetic words from God's servant. The phrase, in the days to come, reaches beyond the lifespan of Jacob's sons and brings the distant future into view. It's the last days, the, like what Peter was talking about in the, in the passage I read for our prayer time. These final days. Same Hebrew phrase is used when Balaam pronounces oracles of blessing over Israel in Numbers chapter 23 and 24. And in Moses' final words of warning and blessing to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 31 through 33, both of those are also in poetic form. Okay? And then to further emphasize that his words were pointing beyond his sons to the future, Jacob used both of his names in verse 2. Did you, did you see that? Listen, uh, my sons, to Jacob, and I will tell you uh, what will happen to you. Come together and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father, Israel. Jacob and Israel, right? Use both of the names in verse 2 to show that the words that he was about to speak were not only for his 12 sons. Yes, they were personal. Yes, they were to individuals. But they were also for the 12 tribes of Israel. And yet his, first, his words for his first three sons did not bode well for their future, nor for their tribes. Look at verse 3. Reuben, you were my firstborn, my strength, and my firstfruits, and the firstfruits of my virility. Virility. I don't know, I'm just making up words this morning. Excelling in prominence, excelling in power, turbulent as water, you will not excel because you got into your father's bed and you defiled it. He got into my bed. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their knives are vicious weapons. May I never enter their, their council. May I never join their assembly for in their anger they kill men and on a whim they hamstring oxen. Their anger is cursed for it is strong and their fury for it is cruel. I will disperse them throughout Jacob and scatter them throughout Israel. All three of these sons, all three, number one, two, and three, these are the th first, firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn, all three of them did something to disqualify themselves from their position and from their inheritance in the family. And their future descendants paid for their wrongdoings. Reuben was the firstborn son, right? Excelling in prominence and power, Jacob said. But Jacob said he was like turbulent floodwaters, uh, um, surging recklessly and bringing about destruction. And then Jacob brought up the incident that we heard about back in chapter 35 when Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. First, first uh, Chronicles 5. The book of Chronicles goes back and lists through the, the descendants of Jacob in their tribes. Reuben is listed out of order there. He's not listed first. 1 Chronicles 5 uh, notes that his birthright was given to Joseph instead because Reuben defiled his, his father's bed. The tribe of Reuben would also settle outside of the promised land. When you get to Canaan, they're east of it, east of the Jordan River. They don't get an inheritance inside the land. Jacob's words for Simeon and Levi weren't much better, right? The fact that he addressed them both together here ought to immediately draw our attention back to the events at Shechem in chapter 34, where they're listed again together. The two of them tricked all the men in the city to getting circumcised, and then they murdered all the men of the city while they were healing from the circumcision. 
Jacob really emphasized their anger here, how unrighteous and, and dangerous it was. He went so far as to call it cursed. He's giving blessings here, but he calls their, their anger cursed. Simeon and Levi were a threat to the peace of all of Israel. Because of that, they would be scattered throughout the nation so that they wouldn't be able to grow strong themselves. This is a good reminder for us that we can't continue to live sinfully for ourselves and expect to receive blessings from God. Sooner or later, our sin will be exposed. Sooner or later, we'll be faced with the consequences. That's why Jesus is so important to us, right? We'll get to that soon. In Deuteronomy 33, Moses didn't even mention the tribe of Simeon in his blessings to the Israelites. When they finally entered the promised land and Joshua helped them divvy up the portions of the land of Canaan, Simeon was given an inheritance within the inheritance that was given to the tribe of Judah, and over the course of history, they sort of, they just assimilated into that tribe and, and lost their identity of, uh, of their own. If you look throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Simeon, the tribe of Simeon is barely mentioned. It just kind of fades out. The tribe of Levi didn't receive any land as an inheritance, but instead they were given 48 cities throughout the promised land to live in. But there's a, a, a redemptive twist to Levi's story, right? In Genesis 35, Levi went through Shechem with his sword and ruthlessly murdered the men of the city in cold blood. But in Exodus 32, the Israelite camp had Aaron make a, a golden calf and they began worshiping it while Moses was on Mount Sinai giving, uh, 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 getting instructions from God for the people. And when Moses came down and he saw what was going on, he said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And guess who came? All of the Levites. All of the Levites. This time they strapped their swords to their side again, but you know what they did? They went through the camp and they killed 3,000 men as an act of God's judgment. This time the anger was righteous. Afterwards, Moses told them, Today you have been dedicated to the Lord since each man went against his son and brother. Therefore, you have brought a blessing. Isn't that amazing? A blessing on yourselves today. Cursed is Simeon and Levi's anger, what Jacob said. And yet, when they trusted the Lord and followed him, God redeemed them. From that day on, the tribe of Levi was set apart for this special privilege of serving as priests and ministers of the law, as well as being caretakers of the tabernacle and later of the temple. God set them apart. They didn't have a land inheritance, but they inherited something far greater. Remember, God never rewards sin, but he does redeem sinners. This is the message of Genesis. This is the message of Scripture. God never rewards sin, but he does redeem sinners. And we're about to see an even greater picture of redemption in Jacob's words to Judah. So let's keep going. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a young lion. My son, you, will re you return from the kill he crouches, he lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes, 
and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. He ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to the choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. This is where the word play and the, and the imagery ramp up through here, okay? Judah's name means praise. It means praiseworthy. And Jacob said that Judah's brothers would, would praise him. Did you catch the serpent-crushing language in verse 8? Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. God told the serpent in Genesis 3.15 that the, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman would be what? Enemies, right? They'd be hostile to one another. And that one day, one of the woman's descendants would crush the serpent's head. Jacob just said that the serpent crusher would come from Judah's line. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Then Jacob gave the imagery of, of a lion returning with its kill and then lying down to sleep in its den after devouring its prey. It's an image of ultimate strength and power. Who would dare rouse something like that? Provoke its wrath. Scholars debate over what some of the Hebrew words mean in verse 10, but one thing that's clear is that Jacob was establishing Judah's family line as a royal family line. And everyone who reigned from Judah's family line would do so in anticipation of this one to whom the, the throne truly belonged. One Hebrew word that is clear in verse 10 is the, is the word that's translated as peoples in English. It can also be translated as nations. The kingdom of the one who, to, to whom the throne truly belongs would encompass more than just Israel, more than just the land of Canaan. It would encompass the whole earth and all the people. During his reign, he would bring abundance to the nations as a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to bless the nations through him, right? We've seen this promise over and over to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. I will bless those who bless you. And one will come from you through whom I bless the nations. Right? The serpent crusher, this one that comes to bless the nations, same guy. Wine is a symbol of prosperity and blessing, and Jacob used it as imagery here to describe this, the prosperity and the blessing of the future kingdom of this future king. When this future king from the tribe of Judah takes the throne, there will be so much abundance that even the choicest vines will be used for mundane things. You ever have things like special tools or things like you, you only use them for certain, certain times and th certain things? Otherwise, they just kind of, you know, you keep them away. That, that doesn't happen here. The best vines are going to be used to tie up a donkey, right? The best wine will be so prevalent, it'll be, it'll be just as common as water for washing your clothes, this is the abundance that, that he's talking about. It's a picture, it's a foreshadowing of the reversal of the curse that God pronounced in Genesis 3 after humanity's sinful rebellion in the garden. Jacob then capped off the imagery by pointing to this future king's strength and power and purity. His eyes are dark like wine. They're darker than wine. His teeth are whiter than milk. Revelation uses some similar imagery to talk about Jesus. Imagine the hope that the Israelites must have felt as they finally began to enter the promised land and take possession of it by conquering their enemies when they got into the land. But then imagine their frustration and their despair when, when one by one they started to not be able to totally drive their enemies out. 
And then imagine their hope once again when, that, 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 uh, when, when God appointed David to be their king. David from what tribe? The tribe of Judah to become the king of Israel, to shepherd his people with a pure heart and to guide them with skillful hands. Now we know David was far from perfect. In fact, he committed some of the most terrible sins. Adultery, rape, murder. And yet God called him a man after his own heart. How? How can you do those things and have God himself look at you and say, this man loves me? David was confident in the Lord and lived an overall life of repentance and reliance on the Lord. He didn't hide his sin. He freely admitted it, sometimes with the help of others, right? We need that, don't we? And yet every time he was confronted with it, he ran to the Lord for mercy instead of hiding from him. He lived a life of repentance and reliance upon God. And God took the covenant that he made with Abraham and extended outward through the whole tribe of Israel and, and then uh, 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 through Moses and, and gave them the law and, and made them a nation and gave them uh, this way to live as, as uh, followers of God. And then and they started bringing it back down into the line of David through Judah's line. When he made a covenant with David himself in 2 Samuel 7, God promised to establish one of David's descendants as an eternal king of an eternal kingdom. And so this covenant line, it expanded out and then came all the way down through a nation and a land to one person. One person. That person is Jesus Christ, right? Jacob's prophetic words to Judah here look forward to that eternal king. And, and we get to look back on the fulfillment of those words through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who's called the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Son of God. He lived a life of purity and perfection, whiter than milk, right? Doing all that God the Father required. And he ushered in the eternal kingdom of God as, and crushed the serpent's head by allowing the serpent to crush his heel. He fulfilled the Genesis 3.15 promise through his suffering and his death on the cross. But his death paid the ransom for his people who were held in bondage and slavery to sin and to death and to the, to the serpent and who were doomed to be crushed in the winepress of God's judgment and wrath because of our sin and rebellion against him. Jesus, our eternal king, redeemed us and he set us free from every bondage, from all of the wrath. And he rose from the dead on the third day to grant us forgiveness and eternal life in him. And now he's seated on the throne as the one to whom it truly belongs. He's come. The scepter will not depart from him until he crushes all of his enemies, including death, under his feet once and for all. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this. When death is finally put to death, when there is no more death, the King, Jesus Christ, will have removed the curse and he will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. And this kingdom will be made up of people from every nation who've been rescued and redeemed by this Lion of Judah and as adopted sons and daughters of God, we will, Judah, we will praise our brother Jesus for conquering all of our enemies all of our enemies, including our own rebellious hearts. 
But we don't just look forward to that kingdom to come, right? We're, we're part of that kingdom now. It's here already and it's not yet. And while we wait for that kingdom to come in fullness, we've been commissioned to direct the obedience of the peoples to the true eternal king. I love this. Listen to this. You know this. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the great commission. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me on heaven in heaven and on earth. I'm the king, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here it is. Teaching them to observe, a.k.a. to obey everything I've commanded. Bringing the obedience of the peoples to the king. Isn't that amazing? That's what we get to do in the Great Commission. And he says, and remember, I'm with you always to the last days, to the end of the age. As members who are already in the kingdom through faith in the life and the death and the resurrection of the king, part of our obedience to him is to take the good news of the gospel to those who are still his enemies. Why? Because we were once his enemies and somebody brought it to us so that he can subdue them with the power of his Holy Spirit as their hearts are are pierced by the sword of his word, not to put them to death, but to bring them to life so that they too can believe and trust in him. Are you pointing lost people to Jesus by sharing the gospel with them? Are you calling them to obedience to the king by turning away from their sins and, and trusting in him? If Christ isn't your king, then scripture makes it clear that you're still an enemy of God because you've put something or someone else on the throne that only belongs to him. And as eternal king, he will conquer every last one of his enemies, including you, including all of us in here, either with his righteous justice and wrath or his merciful love and grace. All of that is holy. All of that is good. Because he is good and holy. He's going to subdue us one way or the other. He promises never to turn anyone away who comes to him for mercy. So why, why would you want to remain under the wrath? Why not come to him for the mercy? Who or what else could rule your heart so perfectly, so gently, so patiently, so powerfully as Jesus Christ? Why not turn from your sins the things that you used to love. Why not put your affection on him and trust in Jesus and his rescuing work? The Great Commission isn't just about reaching lost people with the hope of the gospel, though. It's also about helping believers grow in obedience to the king by learning and loving his good and right commands. Who are you helping grow in that obedience? As you help them understand and love his word, who's helping you? We have the joy and the privilege of seeing Jacob's words to Judah fulfilled in Jesus Christ. May that stir our hearts to greater love and obedience to our eternal king. Isn't it amazing that we get to to have all of this this scripture, all of these words from, from these people that throughout the course of history God was using to unveil his plan of redemption and we get to be on this side of it? Where we can look back at Jacob's words to Judah and know who he's talking about. If that doesn't stir our hearts to greater love and affection, I'm not sure what will. But Jacob has more words and he has more sons, so let's keep going.
Verse 13. Zebulun will live by the seashore and will be a harbor for ships, and his territory will be next to Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the saddlebags. He saw that his resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he leaned his shoulder to bear a load and became a forced laborer. Dan will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a snake by the road, a viper beside the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, Lord. Gad will be attacked by raiders, but he will attack their heels. Asher's food will be rich, but he will produce royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears, fruitful, that bears beautiful fawns. There's more Hebrew wordplay here that ties the blessings to the meanings of each son's name. And there's more animal imagery here used to convey those blessings. But rather than going into a lot of detail for each one of these, it's enough for us to stay focused on the bigger picture here. All of these individual blessings point to the hope in the future prosperity and victory of God's people. Namely Israel, the nation of Israel here, but also in the, in the days to come, God's people from every nation. And it's a stem from the promise of a king that will come from Judah's line. I do want to point out one thing here, though, before we move on. Jacob called his son Dan a snake and a viper that strikes heels, right? That's, we, that's like, that doesn't seem like good language, right? Based on what we know about snakes and vipers and serpents and things like that. This is one of the few places, though, in all of Scripture that a reference to, to snake or, or viper or things like that is actually good. Why? Every other animal reference in this list is a positive blessing. Every other animal reference in this list is a positive blessing. All the animal imagery points to, to blessing, not condemnation. And then from verse 18, listen, what he was saying by using the snake imagery Jacob was saying that Dan would be a small but strong and stealthy tribe. Do you know who came from the tribe of Dan? Samson. One man whom God gave strength and wit to, to judge an entire nation of Philistines. Small, stealthy, right? Strong. The other key that Jacob was using the snake imagery in a positive way comes from what he said in verse 18. It stands on its own. This is why the poetic uh, structure is so important. We can look as he's going through these things, and then this sets apart one line by itself. I wait for your salvation, Lord. As he's calling out these blessings, he's, he's being stirred up in his heart, waiting for God's salvation. It's the first use of the Hebrew word for salvation in the Bible. Yeshua. Does it sound familiar? It can be translated as deliverance. Not only does this point forward to the Israelite exodus from Egypt after 400 years of enslavement, we're getting ready to, you know, the, the, the story is going to continue into exodus. But when we hear that word, we can see how God in his sovereign wisdom was using it to point forward to the one who would embody salvation in his name. Yeshua, Jesus, our great deliverer. Two sons left. Look at verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful vine and a fruitful vine beside a spring. Its branches climb over the wall. 
The archers attacked him, shot at him, and were hostile toward him. Yet his bow remained steady, and his strong arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. By the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, by the God of your father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, and the blessings of the breasts and the womb, the blessings of your father excel, the blessings of my ancestors, and the bounty of the ancient hills. May they rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince of his brothers. Benjamin is a wolf, and he tears his prey. In the morning, he devours the prey, and in the evening, he divides the plunder. That's the end of the poetry. And now we go back to the narrative. This is Moses summing it up. These are the tribes of Israel, 12 in all, and this is what their father said to them. He blessed them, and he blessed each one with a suitable blessing. The blessing that Jacob gave to Joseph is a reflection of the firstborn status that Jacob transferred to Joseph from Reuben. Reuben should have had the firstborn rights, as the, the birthright as the, as the firstborn son, but he disqualified himself, right? Jacob described Joseph as a fruitful vine, possibly alluding to uh, the blessing that he gave to Ephraim. Ephraim's name means doubly fruitful. Jacob used the imagery of the archers to summarize the the suffering that Joseph endured because of others like his brothers and Potiphar's wife and the cupbearer who forgot about him and left him in jail for two years, right? Surely in the 17 years that Joseph and Jacob had spent together in Egypt, he shared these stories with him. And now Jacob is summarizing these in his blessing to his son. Verse 24 and 25 make it abundantly clear that Jacob knew that Joseph had survived all of that suffering. Why? Because God was with him. Listen to these names. The mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the rock of Israel, the God of of your father who helps you, the almighty who blesses you. All of these references to God emphasize the privileged position and blessing that Joseph has now received. They also reveal just how much Jacob's faith in God has grown since God had first appeared to him back in chapter 28. Remember that? When he's like, who are you? All right, well, if you do all the things you, tell, you say you're going to do, then you'll be my God. He's not confused here. He knows who this God is, and he wants to make sure that Joseph knows too. The word bless or blessings is used six times here in the reference to Joseph, more than any other son The blessing of the fertile land was conveyed through the blessing of the heavens above and the earth below, or the uh, the blessings of the deep that lies below. The blessings of fertile offspring was conveyed through the blessings of the breasts and the womb. Land and offspring, right? Part of the covenant blessings. And and, And Jacob closed out his blessing to Joseph by requesting that all of the past blessings of his fathers and his own blessings come to rest on Joseph, emphasizing once again that Joseph is the son who now had the birthright of the firstborn, even though he was son number 11 of 12. You remember what we said last week? None of us earn what we get from God. Can't do it. It's only by his grace. Jacob's final blessing went to his youngest son, Benjamin, and once again he used animal imagery to point to future victory over his enemies. And then in verse 28, Moses, the author, summarized all that Jacob had said to his sons by saying that Jacob blessed each one with a suitable blessing. Like he nailed it, right? 
But notice that Moses called Jacob's sons the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses himself, his original audience, the people he's telling this story to, they were comprised of these 12 tribes that were about to move into the promised land and take possession of it. This is their blessing. This is their history. This is, he's saying, listen, all the things that Jacob said about his sons, he's saying about you. Moses didn't want him to lose sight of the fact that Jacob's blessings went far beyond those days. In fact, as they were preparing to enter the promised land, Moses then also blessed these tribes. Deuteronomy 33, if you have time this week, go look at it. He uses some of the identical wording that Jacob does. He builds from Jacob's blessings here in his own blessings to the tribes. But for now, let's get back to Jacob's final last words. Verse 29. Then he commanded them, Jacob commanded his sons, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my ancestors in the cave in the field of Ephron of the Hethite. The cave is in the field of uh, Machpelah near Mamre in the, land of, in the land of Canaan. This is the field Abraham purchased from Ephron the Hethite as burial property. Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried there. Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried, are buried there. And I buried Leah there. The field and the cave in it were purchased from the Hethites. When Jacob had finished giving charges to his sons, he drew his feet into the bed, took his last breath, and was gathered to his people. Jacob's final words were words of instruction about his burial, but there were so much more of that. These were words of faith. Remember God's promise, God's words to Jacob in chapter 46? What did he say? I will go down with you to Egypt and I will bring you back, right? I will also bring you back. Jacob was giving these instructions to his son in complete dependence, in complete confidence in God's promise. God would bring him back to Canaan. But Jacob also gave these instructions in complete dependence and confidence that God had a homeland prepared for him that surpassed Canaan by eternity, right? A heavenly place, Hebrews 11 tells us, where, or 13 tells us, 11, go look at Hebrews somewhere, tells us that God has prepared a city for them. It's Hebrews 11, the whole of faith. Jacob was about to be gathered to his people. To, his, his body would be buried next to theirs in a cave in Mamre, in the land of Canaan, but his soul would join them in the eternal paradise the heavenly city, the, 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 the home to come that God had prepared for them. It's easy for us to read that and just kind of gloss over it. But I had a friend remind me of this, and I thought it was so encouraging and helpful. As those who put our complete dependence and confidence in God's promise through our faith in Christ, when our time comes and when we take our last breath on this earth, you know what will happen? we will be gathered to our people. We will be gathered to our people, to our, to our family of faith, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Paul, to Peter, and all of those well known by all or known only to us who have lived their lives in dependence upon and in confidence in God's promise and, and his presence until he brings us home. Until he brought them home, may we be comforted 
listen, we have something to look forward to. We're going to be gathered to our people. May we be comforted by this reality and humbled that we will be counted among them because of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. After the sons received blessing from their father, it was time for Jacob to receive honor from his sons. Look at verse, uh, chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph, leaning over his father's face, wept and kissed him. He commanded his servants, who were physicians, to embalm his father, and they embalmed, so they embalmed Israel. They took 40 days to complete this, for embalming takes that long, and the Egyptians mourned for him for 70 days. Then the days of mourning were over, when they were over, jo- Joseph said to Pharaoh's household, If I have found favor with you, please tell Pharaoh that my father made uh, me take an oath, saying, I'm about to die. You must bury me there in the tomb that I made for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go and bury my father, and then I will return. So Pharaoh said, Go and bury your father in keeping with your oath. Verse 1 reminds us of God's faithfulness to keep his promise to Jacob that Joseph would be there to close his eyes when he died. And the embalming reminds us of God's providence in every single detail of his people's lives, including their death. Embalming was invented by the Egyptians. Israelites didn't practice it. Isn't it like God to send his people down to a place where they would be able to preserve his body for the trip all the way back? Seventy days that Egyptians mourned for Jacob included the 40 days that it took to embalm his body plus 30 additional days of mourning. This is the longest recorded period of mourning for anyone in Scripture, and it speaks to the respect that the Egyptians had for Joseph by the way they honored his father. When Joseph asked Pharaoh for permission to leave Egypt to bury his father in Canaan, he promised to return to Egypt afterward, foreshadowing what was coming in the book of Exodus, right? They're back in Egypt But listen, the kindness of this Pharaoh toward Joseph stands in stark contrast to the way Exodus opens up. There was a new Pharaoh, and Joseph and his brothers had all died, and this Pharaoh didn't know who Joseph was. And then guess what happened? Israelites grew numerous in the land, and this Pharaoh didn't like it. And so he oppressed them. A few more verses here. Verse 7. Then Joseph went to bury his father and all Pharaoh's servants, the elders of the household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt went with him, along with all of Joseph's family, his brothers and his father's family. Only their dependents, their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. Horses and chariots went up with him. It was a very impressive procession. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad, which is across the Jordan, they lamented and wept loudly, and Joseph mourned seven days for his father. When the Canaanite inhabitants of the land saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a solemn mourning on the, part of the, uh, on the part of the Egyptians. Therefore, the place is named Abel Mizraim. It's across the Jordan. And so Jacob's sons did for him what he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of, at Machpelah in the field near Mamre, which Abraham had purchased as burial property from Ephron the Hethite. After Joseph buried his father, he returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone with him to bury his father. Again, the note in verse 8 that their dependents and their flocks remained and their herds remained in Egypt. It's a reminder that this trip to the promised land is temporary at best. They got to come back. But it also reveals the magnitude of honor that was shown to Jacob. All of the highest representatives of the land of Egypt went with Joseph and his brothers and their families to bury their father. They went out of Egypt with the protection of Pharaoh's army, his horses and his chariots. 
Isn't that interesting? They went out of Egypt with the, with the protection of Pharaoh's army. Again, stark contrast to the next time they go up out of Egypt with the Pharaoh's chariots and his horses bearing down on them, trying to kill them and, and, and imprison them and bring them back. But it also reveals God's faithfulness. After Joseph and his family and the Egyptians went with him, they crossed over into the promised land. There was another period of mourning for Jacob. And when the Canaanites saw it, the inhabitants of the promised land, even they honored him by, remaining, or by renaming the, the, the threshing floor Abel Mizraim, which means the mourning of Egypt. All the nations, all the nations around are paying attention. The whole scene closes by stating that Jacob's sons did for him what he had commanded them. Finally, all 12 sons worked together, right? To obey their father. There was no arguing, there was no bickering, no jockeying for position, regardless of the degree to which he blessed them or didn't bless them. They were all united in this act of obedience to Jacob. And after they buried him in the cave in Canaan, they, they all returned to Egypt together. Joseph kept his promise to his father, and he also kept his promise to Pharaoh. He'd sworn an oath to go and bury Jacob in the land that God had promised to give them, and he'd given Pharaoh his word that he would return to Egypt when he was done. And as we watch Joseph and his family leave the promised land once again, we're, we're left with both the tension of an unfulfilled promise. They go in, but they can't stay. They've got to come back. But we're also left with the hope of its fulfillment. Will God keep his promises to his people in the blessing of Judah? Jacob's words, God just told us, yes. Yes, I will. Jacob's last words fix our attention once again on the major theme of Genesis. God's promise to rescue his people and to restore blessing to the nations through the serpent-crushing seed of Abraham. Jacob's blessings for his sons ultimately lead to God's blessings for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Jacob's last words were lasting words that would not only shape the future of the nation of Israel, but ultimately shape the future of God's people from every nation with lasting hope. So in response to the eternal blessings of our heavenly Father, may we honor him with lives of obedience and may our own words be lasting words of blessing and honor, glory and praise to the one rightfully seated on the throne forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavens given to us in Jesus Christ. You've given us your Son and with him all things. Father, we pray that you would help us by your spirit who lives in us, yet another blessing, to live lives of obedience to Jesus, our King, to draw others, not to ourselves, but to him, as they see us worship and live in a new way, all for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.